I am rolling. Up, oh, I just hit record. Okay, let's do our clap. One, two, three, clap. Exquisite. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of leaned into the computer a little bit waiting for you. To <laughs> As is custom. So I guess the question is, why so slow? Why three hours? Like, why not just cut the ballast and just shoot straight up and, like, come out of the water like a beach ball you've been holding under in the pool and like, just, like, here we go. Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, George. Say hi, George. Howdy, howdy. Howdy, howdy, indeed. And speaking of howdy, we'll talk about that later. We hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd and exciting family that is humanity, pr- providing that I can fully wake up here. Oh, Boy, this I, works, I, I that... get it. I get it. Uh, Sorry. It, uh, took, uh, it took me a few minutes on the the howdy. I, I see what you're doing. It's clever. Now you're, you're behind and now you're ahead. Look at that. <laughs> Uh, the way this typically works is that George and I will do our amateurs best to give a basic account of the major events in the life of a now-dead person and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're gonna try anyway. So, George, who do we have this time on We Talk About Dead People? Well, Aaron, this week we will be concluding our two-part series on the Sons of Heaven and Hell, August and Jacques Picard. Who the hell writes this? The Sons of Heaven and Hell? Like, <laughs> what What even speech register is this? Um, like, like are, uh, are we a the- 19th century, like, Protestant revival preacher? No, I was, this was just... The sons of, of heaven and the sons of hell shall do battle on this podcast. <laughs> well, they will. I mean, I don't know what you're implying, but I'm pretty sure it's it's actually going to happen. And let me say, I'm really excited about this one, George, and let me tell you why. Last time on this podcast, we explored the highest reaches of the stratosphere from the comfort of our sea base. And this time we'll be exploring the murky, crushing depths of the sea, from the aerial paradise I built for us to flee to in these troubled times. If your definition of an aerial paradise has anything to do with another shipping container, I'm out. I'm done. I mean, but it's I mean, it's not a shipping container this time. It's more like a Colombian dreamscape in the heavens. A world's fair, you might say, but in the sky. Like how high up in the sky? Like I don't I don't want to be crashing into no moon. You know what? You said the moon didn't exist last episode. You know what? It's a sign of a great man that he can change his mind when presented with different evidence. This this month, <laughs> I'm more I'm more into like the local moon gang. Oh, so like the moon isn't so big and actually exists within the atmosphere? That model? Yeah, s- sort of, kind of. Either way, don't fly too high, or you might hit the uh, the moon or or the ceiling of the shipping container, as the case may be. <laughs> Yes, our our fleet of shipping container satellites we've unleashed. There's not a firmament, Flat Earthers. It's just shipping containers. Shipping containers all the way down. (laughs) Well, if nothing else, this podcast is all about shattering that glass ceiling and reaching unto God, at least until he smites us again, which will happen. It's in the Bible. It says it right there in the, the We Talk About Dead People chapters of Philippians or something. But until then, we will be discussing Jacques Picard 
and his submarinal vessel that slipped these surly bonds and touched the face of the elder god. It's getting it's getting weird again. It's getting weird. I know. <laughs> but you know what? The only the only place we're gonna be able to hash out all that weirdness and figure out what your issue is is right here on We Talk About Dead People. That's right, and if you're ready, we can climb up to the top of this weird lighthouse and launch ourselves directly into the stratosphere. Here we go again. Tonight, patriots, we are ascending in our holy duty to make the tale of Jacques Picard known to the sky people and to teach the scraping filth below how to do better. In three, two, one. Hallelujah. George, if you were stuck in a time loop with a beautiful psychic woman who could summon guns and money from the ether, how would you escape her grasp and what would you do to prevent her from following you to the ends of the earth? Okay, in the first place, <laughs> what? Uh, and in the second place, <laughs> I don't know, why would I want to? Like, infinite guns and money, like... You know me, that's, that's a libertarian's paradise. I'm, I'm not Are actually, you a libertarian? No, I, I no, didn't I'm know not, you I'm were. not a libertarian. I'm not a libertarian. Okay, let's make that clear. Not a no, libertarian. I'm not, I'm not a lulbert, but, um, <laughs> but I do like guns, and like money, I assume, would be cool. I've never had it, but I assume it would be kind of neat. Um, could buy a lot of burritos, man. A lot of burritos. I have to warn you, don't go and play Bioshock Infinite after this. You won't want to leave. Because there's just a beautiful psychic woman who summons guns and money from the ether and throws them to you. Oh, I see. I should have known That's this That's the whole was, game. So should have, should if you're have known lonely... This was, this was a little bit beyond your normal, inventive nature without a model. No, I have to copy things from video games and movies. Typical American fashion. Um, Sad. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, this makes a lot more sense now that I know this isn't just some completely whacked out scenario that just came to you at 3 a.m. and you were like, I need to put this on the podcast. Well, I mean, that happens most of the time, but this time I just stole it from Ken Levine. Man, I dreamed about Dark Souls last night. Did you? I don't even remember anything about the dream other than that it was Dark Souls and I woke up with the thinking just in my head, Ash seeketh ember. <laughs> Am I going to die? Well, um, probably, and you'll probably die again and again and again. Is the Dark Souls way? Would uh, uh, would 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 to would depict in the, in those games? You know, I remember I had lots of dreams about Dark Souls when I first started playing it, but they were always in the first person, which was ten times more horrifying. So I don't know if you've ever seen those Dark Souls first person mods. I've, I've seen the first person mods. They don't look great. Yeah, just imagine, like, your camera spinning every three seconds because you're <laughs> rolling away <laughs> yep. from a giant sword. <clears throat> yeah, not not pleasant. You know, okay, so I understand that that question was super weird, so I won't make you ask it to me, because I'm not sure I would want to escape either. Um, though she is a psychic, and she can tear holes in time itself, 
So that's a little scary. You got to ah, keep her happy, ah. especially later in life. I mean, you know, everybody's got their little foibles. Yeah, yeah. She gets mad. You know, you forgot that it was Valentine's Day, so she just rips a tear in the fabric of space and time and throws you to through it, and the next thing you know, you're just getting blasted by Han Solo in some Moss Eisley bar. <laughs> I was going to say, next thing you know, you're waking up in the back of a wagon and hearing, hey, you're finally awake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. Uh, well, it's good to be back behind the mic for the second part of this two-part series, and uh, I, I would like to just do another little, another little shout-out here for our boy Sith. He did send us a little donation the other day and said he missed us, which we miss him too. And I will say, you know... Since we've slowed down our production, I keep I I'm increasingly surprised that our plays still stay pretty high because it means people are still listening and waiting for the next episode. And you know things may have slow, slowed down because of our absurd work schedules, but we've still got many things coming down the line, and I have no intention of stopping this. This is my creative outlet. So, was, <laughs> was I supposed to say something affirming there? No, I just heard something kick in on your end, kind of like a air conditioner or a truck or maybe a tiny uh, mouse a large on a, a large motorcycle. tractor just drove by my house. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, yeah, no, you didn't have to say anything after that. The tractor did all the talking for you. We will continue plowing <laughs> the fields of podcasting content, um, <laughs> for years to come. I should suspect. Uh, and with that, I also want to let everyone know that we're actually going to have our first. Um, interview episode that we've had, and God, I don't think we've ever done an interview with a just like straight up interviewed another person. Uh, but we've actually managed to secure uh, an interview with the legendary uh, alternate historian, kind of I don't know what you'd call him, like a like a just a researcher, I suppose. I, I don't know. Anyway, his name's Howdy McCoskey, and he's the guy who's kind of gone on record talking about how the World's Fair was actually like some secret operation uh, to destroy old buildings that were already in America, so it's a little bit Mormon, but not quite. Anyway, he's coming on soon, and it's gonna be a lot of fun, I think, as long as we can uh, not go a little too crazy and start talking about Antarctica. Though, yeah. I, I think, George, you should be asking Howdy about Antarctica. If if he starts talking about numbers, we're going to lose Aaron. He, he, I will say, the interviews I've listened to with Howdy, he does not talk about numbers. That's good for all of us, because I know yeah. how you get. Let's have one of yeah, your well, fits again. And <laughs> Yesterday, before uh, before work, I, I went to Culver's. and Do you, do you know what Culver's is? I know what, what it is. is. Yeah, I know. I know. Okay, okay. They sell butter burgers. So I went to get a delicious butter burger from Culver's. And uh, they were like surprised I didn't want fries and a drink, and I was like, "Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not disgusting and pathetic like most Americans. I will just have the triple patty bu butter burger, and that will be all." Thank you. <laughs> truly, <laughs> truly, the moderation of a saint. Yeah, it cost me five bucks for that delicious sandwich, and I rolled up to the window, and I'm like, "Here's my card," and you know, she takes it, scans it, and says. Here, your order number is 33. And she takes a post-it and sticks it on my rearview mirror that says 33. <laughs> and I'm like, Illuminati, confirmed. <laughs> anyway, so you, let me guess. You torched your car on the side of the highway. There was, just, I had no choice. Watched, so. it, watched it burn while you ate your butter burger. Uh, my magical 33 designated butter burger. So, yeah, I'm going to have to ask you to drive out here and give me a ride to work tonight. I don't know <laughs> if you can make it. 
but yeah, I don't really have much else to add on to the uh, to the updates on that. But I am I am excited to do our, to do our first interview, especially in this case where we're going to be putting our money where our mouth is on regards to this sort of like conspiracy alternate history Antarctica talk we've been teasing with. I think it'll be very interesting to talk to somebody who's you know deeper into that than just like meme territory. We all right? know don't something's th- going on in Antarctica. That's not even there is and not even we a conspiracy will. Theory. We yeah, of course not. They do have the Wells Fargo ATM there, so we two, will definitely be two of them. Oh my god! The, I know. Is nothing the sacred? globalists have done it again? <laughs> and with that, I would like to ask the computer to please bring up Jacques Picard and August Picard again because he's involved in this story a lot. There we go. All right, George, if you would please describe the image in the not script below. All right, so we have a dude who, um... He looks like he belongs on a beach, but also in a forest, kind of. So he's, uh, he's holding in one hand a sun umbrella, it looks like, and in the other hand a rifle. Percussion cap. Maybe 54 caliber. Your image resolution isn't high enough for me to see. Um, and then he's got a net also with the rifle. So that makes me think of like fishing and stuff. I'm not sure what the rifle's for because you don't usually fish with a rifle. But, you know, to each their own. Uh, he's got like he's got the classic sort of uh, gentleman at ease with his long sleeve shirt rolled all the way up. <laughs> and some sort of strange white sack hanging yeah. from his belt like maybe full of like shells he's collected I don't, I don't really know and he's got like the uh the sort of grandpa fishing cap and a very respectable like groucho Marx mustache yep yeah That's i don't really, right. i don't really know what's going on here i think his pants are ripped too actually <laughs> yeah definitely like this um i really have no idea what's going on in this photo this is an interesting little character that I ran across in my research, um, and it, it's kind of funny because I've never heard of this guy, but his Wikipedia page is literally like ten times as long as Jacques Picard, the man who went to the bottom of the ocean. Um, this is not Jacques Picard. This is uh, this is William Beebe, <laughs> who was a, a kooky zoologist, and he sort of demands his own episode because of just how much crazy stuff he did. Um, Apart from being um, uh, among the first to attempt a bathyspheric descent into the black, which we will be talking about with our uh, with our with this show's namesake, he was also really into pheasants and divorce. Um, Those, but he'll be classic pair, classic pair, classic pair. He'll be mentioned at least in passing later on. But the photo made me laugh uh, because he just—I mean, I don't know what's in that sack, but it looks like a garlic bundle you'd buy at Whole Foods or something and he appears to have some sort of small camera I mean this is this is like this is a character from a Disney movie who got stuck on an island it reminds me of something out of bed knobs and broomsticks um, but yeah that's William Beebe but anyway here's a real picture of Jacques Picard if you would mind describing this photograph okay this is uh wow so this is not just Jacques Picard but based on the uh the inscription thereupon, I'm guessing that is Jacques Picard and Auguste Picard, our subject last week. Yes, um, indeed. And so they are standing together in what appears to be a small 
submarine, which is above water. Um, the the pants are really high up. Like this is this is yeah. <laughs> this is retro. Like the pants are about halfway between belly button and nipple. I would say. Like this, <laughs> these are some high waisted pants on both of them. On both of yeah. them. But I mean, they they pull it off. Like they've got like matching. It looks like baby gray tweed pants and like white polo shirts. Like it's yeah. If one of them wasn't like 800 years old, like they would, they would, it would look like a modeling shoot. But one, who I assume is the father, looks about 800 years old. Like he's got the mad scientist hair and everything, mm-hmm. just in gray coming out on both sides. And then the other one uh, looks like he's in his 20s, um, significantly younger than 800 years old. And he's got kind of the kind of the surly stare at the camera thing, like you you see in those weird advertisements in airline magazines. Um, but I think the most notable thing is probably that they're standing on a submarine and that their pants are buckled just under their nipples. Yeah. (laughs) I agree with you on the modeling look. It definitely has that sort of, like, swagger kind of look. And neither of them are smiling and the one's looking directly into the Well, I mean, the one's 800 years old. Like... Right. He's an elderly... No, no. Um, uh, what's the nice way to say elderly these days? I thought elderly was the nice way. Uh... A gently aged gentleman? I, I don't know. <laughs> a mature individual. There you go. We have a mature model and uh, <laughs> an airline model <laughs> next to each other. But yes, they are on a submarine, and this is Auguste Picard and Jacques Picard on their submarine. I believe this is the Trieste, um, but I couldn't say for sure. They had many submarines that they worked on together. That's um, the dream, isn't it? Isn't it like to work with your dad on building submarines that will plumb the depths of the ocean? That's pretty cool. So you got like this wizard-looking guy and this young apprentice, and they're about to they're about to get real deep and discover the secrets of Shambhala on the bottom of the ocean. Ooh. Something like that, yeah. So thank you for that description. We've gotten William Beebe, August Picard, Jacques Picard, and a submarine out of the way, so I think it's probably time to actually get into the actual story here. If you're ready. No, I am ready. So is William Beebe actually going to be in it, or did you just think it was like a cool photo? No, William Beebe is actually in this story. Okay, he is in it. I just want to make sure. Just want to make sure. Okay, because he looks looks cool. Like, I I want him to be there. Yeah, he he looks cool for for a man who's all about about pheasants and divorce, so... Pheasants and divorce, man. It's a tale as old as time. Yep. Pheasants and divorce. All right. Well, let's dig in. Let's begin. Jacques Picard was born in the city of Brussels, Belgium, on July 28th, 1922. This is not a great start. What what do you have? What's wrong with Belgium? Nobody likes Belgium. I mean, that is true. They, They don't have the best track record in the 20th century. And prior to the 20th century. Or, well, what has Belgium done in the last hundred years besides get bombed to shit in World well, War One? Well, invented. Oh, that's true. <laughs> it's one of those made-up countries. Um, and they cut off a bunch of people's hands in Africa, I guess. I remember that. That's an episode I don't want to do. <laughs> so, anyway, so unfortunately he was born in Belgium. Um, Jacques was the next in line... Of a long line of scientists named Picard who did amazing things and, like his father and grandfather, would grow up simply swimming in the science scene. You like the alliteration I did there? 
Uh, that was that was beautiful. Yeah, a tear a tear but, comes to my eyes. Good. <laughs> much like his father and grandfather, there actually isn't much documentation on Picard's life outside of his scientific work and accomplishments. There's, I mean, he did write something like an autobiography, but these guys, the Picards, just don't do the C.S. Lewis. I was born in a, you know, Dublin street or whatever. He's. <laughs> It's not like, oh, I didn't like my dad because he made us eat, like, cold meat for lunch, and, and we would read <laughs> books, but it was often too hot. There's none of that going on with the Picards. They're just like, yeah, I was a kid once, but I was a man very quickly, and then we did science things. <laughs> so there's there's not so much in the way of, like, a, a personalized documentary about, you know, the young Picards. So that is why we'll we'll just sort of breeze through the childhood um, Jacques did spend much of his childhood watching his father, August work on his spherical inventions, including the various iterations of the capsule that rocketed the old man to the stratosphere on the last episode of this show. And as Jacques grew up, he also watched the old man turn his wizened gray eyes from the sky to the sea, a fascination that Jacques himself would inherit naturally. Jacques attended school at the École Nouvelle de la Suisse Romande. Does that sound right? No, but let's be pretty long. <laughs> no. Yeah, no, I don't know how to pronounce any of that. Ek, do you want to give it a shot? I'm good. Okay. <laughs> just let's just let let it stand. Let it. Stand. One of us. It, one of us is not a linguist. The other is a linguist, and neither of us like speaking baguette. True. True. So. This École Nouvelle de la Suisse Romane was a co-ed bilingual French and English boarding school. The school was known for being very elite, with the first class only being open to 36 students. Um, it was also very good by all accounts, and we would expect nothing less for the son of the Patriarch of the Heavens, Auguste Picard. But when his time at this boarding school is completed, Jacques would go on to study at the University of Geneva in 1943 at the age of 21. He took one year off to serve in the French for, uh, French Foreign Legion, the French First Army during the war. Uh, no, this is World War II. But he was back in school shortly before, I'm um, shortly, oh my god, I'm not awake enough. Let me take a drink here. <clears throat> shot, 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 shot. <laughs> He was back in school shortly after the war and graduated in 1946. You see what the shot did for me? Here I am. Look, look at that. You're just smooth, clear, amazing. Mm. <laughs> Drink Coca-Cola. Okay, Alright, so <laughs> after graduation, Jacques divided his time between teaching economics and working with his father on his lady, lady, latest crazy invention, the bathyscaphe. I'm getting into it. Um, just so everyone knows, I literally woke up not too long ago, and I'm still trying to get my act together here. But anyway, so Jacques was really into economics. He was teaching it. He was um, still taking classes on it, studying it very closely. But all of his time outside of classes and outside of the school went to his father's workshop. Um, and they worked together on various iterations of this bathyscaphe. So it, um, just to refresh our minds, when did when did the uh, the famous stratosphere thing happen? Oh God! Now you're asking me to remember numbers. I think it was like nineteen. I, like I'm just wondering approximately how old Jock was, or if he was born yet, or what. 
Okay. Well, Jacques was nine, I believe, when his okay. when August went to the stratosphere. Let me double check, though. I have the document here, and I would hate to misinform our our lovely our lovey lovey our lovely listeners. Um, insert elevator music here. I'm scrolling through Eustace von Liebig. Ah, yes, the the old bullion. Yes. I actually, my mother bought a OXO product, which I had never seen before, so that's kind of weird. I've never heard Illuminati of OXO. Illuminati confirmed. Illuminati confirmed. Um, let's see here. No, still talking about the Illuminati. Ah, 1930, they began work. 1932. Okay, so he was actually fairly, fairly old. He was, you know. Yeah. 10. He wasn't like a it wasn't like a little baby. Yeah, no no no. Okay, he, so this is an important event in his childhood, presumably. You know, dad goes up to the stratosphere. Right. And of course he watched it all happen with his family, which wasn't that big, but you know. Probably a little bit nerve wracking. It's like weren't they supposed to load supplies before they took off? There Did anyone go. pack the water? <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, the latest crazy invention that the Picard's working on is the bathyscaphe. And the bathyscaphe was a natural development from what was called a bathysphere submersible. A model that had been popularized by the man we mentioned earlier, William Beebe! Now, William Beebe. Classic Beebe. So Beebe's was, ex was exceptional at zoology and divorcing his wife, but he also happened to be one of the main pioneers in deep sea diving. Um, there was nothing he couldn't do, it would seem, except for not divorce his wife. Biebs was all about, all about divorcing his wife, and we won't talk about that at all. I'll just leave that without context. He divorced his wife. <laughs> okay, anyway. So, Beeb had partnered up with an inventor named Otis Barton, and Barton had discovered Beeb after the Beebster had written some articles expressing interest in developing a cylindrical diving bell to explore the depths of the ocean. So... Beeb's like, I'd like to go to the bottom of the ocean, and I'd like to do it in a cylindrical See if, see if there belt. are any women down there I can divorce. <laughs> <laughs> and Otis Barton was like, I got you, bro. Um, but for those of you who don't know, the diving bell was sort of the granddaddy of all submarines. It was basically a giant bell that you would drop into the ocean to capture a pocket of air for divers to breathe from uh, between salvaging things from sunken ships and battling small krakens. It appeared in Assassin's Creed Black Flag, and that's the first time I ever saw one, so... Take that, historical knowledge. I learned from video games. Ha 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 ha. Did I, did I ever tell you about that class I took with that girl who was like, You can't learn anything from video games? Ever tell no, you about that? No. Oh, she was adamant. She was absolutely certain you can't learn a thing from video games. And I schooled her! Not by telling her about the diving bell, but by telling her that I learned <laughs> how a how a car engine worked from a video game called Car Mechanics Simulator. So there you go. I could see the connection there. Yeah, but I think she thinks all video games are Grand Theft Auto, so... Uh, it's funny how it's gone full circle. The, the academics are now like, Grand Theft Auto bad. When I was growing up, it was the evangelicals who were all Grand Theft Auto bad. <laughs> how things change. But anyway... Otis Barton contacted William Beebe to discuss the development of this new diving instrument and suggested that instead of using the cylindrical diving bell idea, they should use an invention that Barton was already working on. A thing that he called the bathysphere. 
Barton's bathysphere was pretty much what you'd expect. It was a sphere made of metal that would be attached to a series of cables and dropped into the ocean with people inside. This thing was heavy duty, and uh, there are some existing films of this thing in use showing Beeb and Barton climbing into this bumpy metal ball, screwing on the hatch, and just gets getting straight yeeted into the ocean. Um, so if I, I've included a link here to one film strip. Uh, of Beeb and Barton's first bathysphere expedition. We think it's the first. People weren't so great at labeling film strips back then. It is a silent film, so I would like you to watch it and describe what you see. And if you have to slow it down, um, it is a speedy old silent film, so you might have a hard time keeping up unless you're going rather slow here. Uh, so the first thing I notice is uh, there's not really like a door. There's just kind of a hole that they shove the people into. And then they close <laughs> yeah. it with, like, a big iron um, plug. And uh, is there a window in there? Yes. Okay. It's on the other side, though. Okay, it's on the other side. I, say, I didn't see a window, which kind of, seems kind of to defeat the purpose. But, yeah, so it literally looks like a bomb from Looney Tunes. It's just this yep. big metal ball. With, um, and it has a little little flat area on one end but that's where the that's where the thing opens up and the people get pulled out or pushed in it looks incredibly uncomfortable i wouldn't want to be in there yeah uh, look at the guy yeah. crawling out yeah it, it looks simple enough you just shove the person into the giant metal ball close it up and then drop it in the ocean yep pretty pretty simple concept and that's what uh, that's what diving sort of looked like it's sort of you know if i were a kid and i were like oh I want to go underwater. I wouldn't think to use a diving bell. I'd be like, how can I make a ball and get inside of it and drop also, it in the I ocean? I love the description of this YouTube video. Unused, unissued material, no paperwork, dates unclear or unknown. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's from British Pathé or whatever the hell. Um, but yeah, as you can see, these, these, these early bathyspheres were... They weren't primitive. They were just early, right? Because... The, just the fact that they can drop a ball into the water with communication lines and everything back to the surface and not have everybody die, um, that's a pretty pretty significant upgrade from, like, you know, a boat, right? Or, you know, um, dropping a ball into the ocean and having everyone die. Right, right, right. But even though they were tactically successful, these early bathyspheric expeditions by Beeb and Barton didn't go super well. Um, the men did achieve depths never before reached, but they did have some problems. First, while it seemed like a great idea to climb inside a cannonball with a few windows and let a crane throw your ass into the abyss, it turns out that the ocean is not exactly a pool of still water. Beneath the surface, you get things like that riptide thing from Finding Nemo. And on one of their first dives, they landed directly in the midst of one such thing. So picture this dinky iron ball with two men a camera, and a ton of other equipment aboard, just getting rocked beneath the surface. Now, because they were attached to a cable for air and communications, they didn't just get torn away into the darkness forever. That would have been very sad. Just, they'd drop in and boom, launch like a cannonball into the abyss, never to be seen again. Um, they were attached to the surface by this long, very uh, stout cable. So, instead of flying away, they gathered up a ton of speed very suddenly, and then just as suddenly as they were raised above the riptide, sort of dangling in the stillness for a minute, they swung back the other way. <laughs> so they're attached to the boat, swinging back and forth like a pendulum, 
for nearly the entire first ride of this thing. Um, and Barton got so sick at one point that he just up and barfed right there in the capsule. And I mean, I mean you who can't, wouldn't? You can't blame the man, but that also is kind of terrible. You're now in a metal ball with vomit. Yeah, and <laughs> camera equipment just crashing all over the place. So like, it it really does feel like a comedy sketch. Um, and I think this kind of thing is where Nutty Professor and whatnot come from. Delicious. Now, of course, things are terribly unbearable due to the tight quarters, the pendulum effect, and the stinking vomit messing up the atmosphere. Nonetheless, the men carried on to the end, emerging from their undersea human wrecking ball, bruised, battered, and covered in the remnants of Barton's breakfast, but nonetheless successful. And they went on a few more expeditions after this, using the same device. Um, and the you know after that, they were like, okay, let's try to avoid the riptides. And they did do a few where they just put a camera in the thing and dropped into the ocean, no people involved. Um, and they pointed the camera out the window and just sort of let it film. Uh, to see if they could capture some images of sea life, because remember, Biebs is a zoologist. He's interested in seeing uh, bioluminescence in fish. He wants to see those deep sea critters that are super weird. Um, that had been, of course, dredged up by, you know, deep sea fishermen. Uh, for the longest time, and they were, you know, they would bring them to the surface, and they'd be these, like, amorphous blobs of goo, because the pressure change was so much, the fish just couldn't handle it. So they wanted to see them alive, um, and this camera pointing out the window in the bathysphere allegedly worked, but all I can find of the photos they said they took appear to be fake. I will let you be the judge. Do these look like real fish to you? I mean, they do look like some of those weird creatures you find at the bottom of the sea with strange distended jaws and whatnot, but I mean, these look, they don't look like actual photographs. Um, they look more like illustration. Right. Um, and these are sort of tacked onto the film strip that, that I, that we just watched. Um, there was a, there was a, ah, there's a long history of zoologists sort of drawing things and then making models of them and taking photos of them and just sort of letting them get out there and people being like, oh, those are definitely real. And then the zoologist never bothers to be like, yeah, I did. It's, they're not real. They're models. They just let it go out there. Um, so I'm not accusing Biebs of doing anything but divorcing his wife. I'm just saying these photos look awfully fishy. Ha <laughs> 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 Wait, how many times was Biebs divorced? Uh, just one time. <laughs> oh! And we, we've literally made it his whole personality. Jeez. Uh, it's not fair at all. No, he, he, I, I believe he married, he was like super into pheasants and he went all over the world to photograph different pheasants and he met a woman who was also super into pheasants. And then they went on these like amazing journeys together where they like drew pheasants, they collected feathers, captured some for, you know, the zoo. And they talk had about, all these. Talk about first date ideas right there. Right. Capturing pheasants. That's Yeah. Uh, we actually have a pheasant that lives in our backyard. He's, he's kind of cool. I've thought about capturing him and taking him on a, a date, but um, he, he seems rather happy here, so I won't be pestering him. <laughs> but yeah, no, so he he and this woman, super into pheasants, had all these travels together, and then at some point, Biebs meets uh, one of his fans, and she's super young, and uh, I don't know. I think, I'm pretty sure he just divorced his wife and eloped with the, with the young fan. So... Proto-YouTube star is all I'm saying. <clears throat> anyway, 
So the Wrecking Ball bathysphere design had some flaws, and August Picard, being the amazing genius that he was, correctly identified these problems in his book, Earth, Sky, and Sea, which we quoted on the last episode several times, and we quote again here. Would you mind putting on your best science voice? I will I will try. Wow, you made the text really small. I feel like I'm at the eye doctor's. I'm making it bigger. <clears throat> oh, there you go. Look at that. Look at that. I get the... I get the blind person test now. <laughs> <clears throat> Oceanographic expeditions which lower nets to great depths always carry an ample reserve of these appliances. What appliances? Just just keep going. <laughs> okay. It is well known, in fact, that they run great risk of losing them by the cables breaking. All this demonstrates clearly, I believe, that the bathysphere, that is to say, the sphere suspended by a cable, is a very dangerous device if we wish to pursue our exploration of the oceans to their greatest depths. The longer the cables, the greater their weight. It is, of course, possible to use cables whose resistance to stress increases with the increase of the weight they must bear, but that is not sufficient to eliminate all risk of breakage. No doubt the safety of the bathyspheres could be increased by using nylon ropes. Nylon would have the advantage of having practically no weight in the water. Besides, its considerable elasticity would absorb the effect of shocks. But are we certain that no spoilsport would take it into his head to sharpen his teeth on it? Apart from the danger of the cable breaking, the bathysphere has another disadvantage. The surface vessel being always more or less rocked by the billows, the sphere can never be completely motionless in the water. This motion is disagreeable to certain fish which prefer to move away and thus escape all observation. Finally, let us note that, according to the accounts of Professor Beeb, classic Beebster, his <laughs> bathysphere never approached the sea bottom. He evidently considers that contact with the sea bottom is dangerous for a cabin which shares the movement of a surface vessel. It is not to be forgotten, however, that immense credit is due to Professor Beeb, classic Beebster, for having built, <laughs> with Engineer Barton, the first submarine cabin able to resist high pressures. It is no exaggeration to say that it is he who opened the doors of the abyss to man. Hmm. I thought that right. was like the furtive pygmy or something. The what? <laughs> Sorry, Dark Souls, the furtive pygmy? So easily oh, forgotten? Oh, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. Do you even watch the cutscenes, man? No, there there are cutscenes in Dark Souls. <laughs> What's the furtive <sighs> pygmy? Never mind. Is it you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, it is. Hope you're happy. Okay, so <laughs> furtive pygmies aside, um, I like that August is giving um the beepster credit where credit is due. I mean, yeah, and classic beepster. Classic beepster. Um. And uh, it's important to note that he is definitely giving full consideration to the Beepsters, the classic, classic Beepsters, uh, initial design of the cable. And he's saying that there are some difficulties with it. It would work, but I'd like to point out that he really doesn't want to hit the bottom of the ocean with a boat attached to the bathysphere. Or have and a shark bite the ropes. Right, they were worried about sharks biting the ropes, and legitimately, because they would run into some issues with sharks later on, which we'll talk about, uh, which is absolutely hilarious in a lot of ways. But Man, I wish I had more issues with sharks. Well, someday you'll just have to stop being a furtive pygmy. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, jeez. 
So the main takeaway is that while Beeb and Barton's initial work had some flaws, they had indeed accomplished something very, very important. They had, in fact, built a submarine cabin that wasn't crushed under immense pressure using a spherical model. Um, there were some things to iron out, <laughs> but this, <laughs> but this seemed like a functional prototype to work, uh, work from to August, who had already, you know, as we have seen, developed a serious bias for spherical vehicles. <laughs> It was a match made in the heavens, one might say, or ah, beneath the waves. Ah. I'm gonna stop it. I, well, I can't promise. I wrote this over the course of a few weeks, so I, I don't remember how many terrible puns I'd, I put in here. So Now, Auguste Picard was a big dreamer. And the further I read in his book, Earth, Sky, and Sea, the more I realized how broad his interests actually were. He was not exactly a specialist. Now, we'll remember him, of course, for reaching the stratosphere and for building submarines, but August Picard was something of a renaissance man when it came to science. And so too were many scientists of that day, relatively speaking. Um, his writing began to remind me of Sir Francis Bacon or Emanuel Swedenborg, um, who was definitely not an alien. Press X to um, doubt. <laughs> here was a man who had very broad interests that were deeply rooted in personal curiosity and wonder. This is where the title of Renaissance Man actually came from. It was people who were educated across multiple fields. Um, and this is one point I would like to make, is that it used to be that we didn't just have physicists who were just physicists. They also had, like, a deep interest in chemistry or biology or zoology, or like the classic beepster, you know, you could be into zoology and diving to the bottom of the ocean um, all at once. And uh, before we had all, all of our different fields of specialization, specialization, like we have today, there was really no gigantic separation between the physicist, the botanist, or the geologist. In fact, in the scientific world at the time, it was apparently understood that the understanding of one field would assist the student in the understanding of another. Um, this was, of course, and you, you will recognize this from your look into Francis Bacon, um, this was uh, sort of I did like... Rog I did Roger Bacon. Roger Bacon, whatever. <laughs> it's a bacon. Roger Bacon. What is it with all these bacons in science? Whatever. Anyway, so, um, this sort of sprang from sort of an older understanding of natural philosophy as opposed to the scientific, um, I don't know if you'd call it a philosophy or, I, I wouldn't call it a method these days, um, but in natural philosophy it was sort of like there was this underlying belief that if you could, you could learn something in one field, you could sort of apply it to another, at least sort of tangentially. Um, the, the, uh, early scientists were just sort of simply learned men. Um, they were once called alchemists and later called natural philosophers, later called scientists, blah, blah, blah. And then they were finally categorized by specialization, which ruined we'll it see, all, which ruined it all, honestly. <laughs> yeah, no, and like, um, in addition, like they were, they were literally everything like archaeologists. It was all just bundled up. It's like, ah, yes, I have. Finished with my chemical mixture. Now I must turn my attention to these Mesopotamian tablets. Yeah, <laughs> right. And it's sort of, it's sort of like. Uh, I, I mean, I certainly believe that the less specialized you are, the better you're able to sort of transfer your knowledge between different fields. Now, nowadays, it's like, oh, I studied marketing, and so I'm the more be a like a wizard you seem. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> like, um, if you can mix chemicals together, whatever. Like, get out of here. You're a loser. If you can, <laughs> like, just read ancient languages, you're cooler than a chemist, but, like, still. But if you can, like, do chemicals and ancient languages, literal wizard material. 
Well, yeah, but that's what that's what they that's what the that's what alchemical texts were. It was like, yeah, ah, yes, this is written in Latin, Greek, ancient Hebrew, in some form of, I don't know, pig Latin, El <laughs> Elvish. But, yeah, but you have to know. <laughs> I can't read it. Yeah, but you have to know all of these different languages to access these texts, and that's what that's what sort of the mysterium of old science or natural philosophy or alchemy. That's sort of what it what it was for the longest time until people started really drilling down into this scientific idea of, all right, it's not about learning and sort of moving with nature. It's about learning all of the ways to hack nature and exploit it. Um, and as far as specialization goes, a good example of this, of course, is the uh, is Henry Ford, who essentially weaponized specialization and the division of labor in the assembly line. He made jobs very simple, um, so people could be easily switched out, uh, and trained in new areas. Um, but there were very few in the midst who understand, who understood the whole grand machine. Like, there wasn't one person at the factory, I mean, there was, but there weren't that many people at the factory who could build a Model T from the ground up, you know what I mean? August Picard was one such man who was at least attempting to understand the grand machine of all science, and apply what he knew in each field to the other. But he was also very clearly driven by an urge to discover and see the unseeable. <clears throat> this is represented here in this quote below, which I just expanded for you, thus the pause. Also from Earth, Sky, and Sea, in reference to his development of a submarine. Would you put on your best science voice? <clears throat> the idea of such a ship is not new to me. I was a first-year student at the Zurich Polytechnic School when, by chance, I read the fine book of Carl Kuhn recounting the oceanographic expedition of the Waldivia. Nets let down to considerably over a thousand fathoms brought back submarine fauna to the deck of the ship. They worked day and night. When a net was brought up in complete darkness, the oceanographers leaning over the rails were struck by the multitude of phosphorescent animals which the net contained in its sign. Certain fish were endowed with veritable headlights, but these very but these sorry, but very quickly these lights grew pale and went out. The fish could no more endure the low pressure and high temperature of the surface water than we could have endured the enormous weight of the masses of water beneath which they lived. To observe these fish in their natural setting, there is only one means to go down ourselves. There is only one means to go down ourselves to the deepest part of the ocean. It must be possible, I said to myself, to build a watertight cabin resisting submarine pressure, and furnished with portholes to allow an observer to admire a new world. This cabin would be heavier than the water displaced. It would be necessary then, in complete analogy with the free balloon, to suspend it from a large vessel filled with a substance lighter than water. The fundamental principle of the bathyscaphe was born. So we get caught up on inventions and the journey and all of that, but deep in his heart, Auguste Picard just wanted to see some cool fish. Don't we all? <laughs> and I love it. He's like, we really want to see these fish with veritable headlights on their faces, so we're just going to build a highly sophisticated, uh, heavier-than-water <laughs> bathyscaphe and just sink down so we can look at them. Which I love. Um, so Auguste and Jacques went to work. The first thing they wanted to eliminate was the cable attachment from the submersible to the surface. This had obviously caused Beeb and Barton a lot of problems, so that just that just had to go. And of course, August, his great mind teeming with knowledge of the secrets of the universe, decided that this deep-sea diving vessel would have to be free-floating. 
Now, it might seem obvious that a submarine would be unattached from anything on the surface, but this isn't like a U-boat. Um, the design is not an attempt to create something that can have ultimate mobility or anything like that. It's not a combat vessel or anything. Um, the goal was literally to make a boat that could sink to the bottom of the ocean, sit there for observational purposes, ascend back to the surface, and keep everyone alive while doing it. Which is kind of amazing. Seems if you reasonable. Think yeah. And of course, as we mentioned in the previous episode, the Picard's work was put on hold due to the outbreak of World War II. Um, not much use in seeing cool fish when Hitler's on the scene, I guess. Did Hitler um, like cool fish? He probably did, but I couldn't say. He, he seemed more interested in, like, Poland and things. Are there cool uh, fish in Poland? Probably. Uh, depends what you mean by fish. <laughs> anyway, so the work was further stunted by the actual human loss of the war as well. Uh, for example, August Picard's assistant, Jean Guillison, Guillison, whatever, was killed <laughs> in action. Um, his science knowledge, skill, and experience lost forever on the field of battle. Um, and this wasn't like a, this was pretty common. You would have guys who were like really, really smart, knew a lot of stuff, just getting straight up wasted uh, by one bullet for some ridiculous charge of some kind. Um, a, a serious bummer. But it wasn't until the end of uh, 1945, the very end, in fact, when things were settling down, uh, that Picard was able to replace this uh, aforementioned, you know, kill KIA assistant. In order to secure the necessary funding, uh, he was essentially allowed only candidates pre-screened by the Fond National, National, the Funds National, the Fund National Fund, um, who would be reporting back to the paymasters with proof that the team was producing results. Now they were, of course, getting their funding from various governments, especially Belgium, um, and so the governments were sort of like, well, we need to have our guys along for the ride to make sure you're doing the things that we want. So Max Cousins, a capable Belgian, was selected for this job of making sure that Auguste and Jacques were, you know, meeting the purpose of the mission and not just getting distracted by cool fish. So although Max Cousins was good at what he did, uh, the fact that he was working for two masters frustrated Auguste Picard, um, who was understandably pissed off that a political structure had invaded his scientific pursuits. It made things slower, sillier, and way more annoying. Um, but Auguste bit the bullet and accepted the deal. Anything yeah, I mean, for cool fish. I can understand his, you know, it's kind of the eternal you know, opposition between the person who's sort of just in it for the knowledge and like the you know, the government flunky. Yeah. Um, and like, Cousins was... Can, go ahead. Can we weaponize the cool fish? <laughs> like, that's not the point. Well, this is a problem that the Picards are going to run into again and again. And we briefly mentioned it um, on the last one after his initial, like, exploratory stratospheric expedition where it just seemed like a couple of guys doing science. Then when the army got involved, they're like, aha, now you aren't allowed to fly. <laughs> Like, that's just, do you remember that Mitchell and Webb sketch with Dr. Death, the inventor? No. He keeps unveiling these inventions that have names like you know, Death Ray and stuff, but then they actually have some like helpful purpose, and the military people who are funding it are like, perhaps there could be other military applications. He's like, no, I created the giant Death Ray to help mankind, not destroy it. <laughs> there is no military application for my work. <laughs> 
Well, that's kind of what we're running into here, again. So, <clears throat> the Picards have some serious problems to solve to create this resurrecting, sinking boat. The first problem of the actual capsule was pretty much taken care of um, because of the bathyspheric model. Aside from lots of tinkering, and they, they would do lots and lots of tests to make sure that this capsule was safe. But they had to figure out things like oxygen supplies, power, portholes, equipment, etc. And these are all, of course, separate bridges to cross. But the other major bridge was the actual sinking mechanism. Just how can we sink ourselves to the bottom of the ocean and not crash into things? Ah! Mm, very serious problem to solve. Initially, August had the idea of using some kind of solid substance to sink the vessel. Ideally, he thought lithium would be the perfect fit, but lithium was expensive and was being quickly bought up by nuclear developers, so lithium was very quickly out. And in his book, he has a short list of heavier-than-water materials that could be used for this purpose, and he lists the advantages and disadvantages of each. But, of course, me being me, I couldn't make, you know, head nor tail of it. Um, because I'm not, I'm not a science man! But anyway, what, what August appears to have arrived at was essentially a big tank of gas. Um, and there's a whole hell of a lot more to it than that, but my little mind cannot even begin to work through things like how temperature, pressure, and other such factors would play into this. Testing began at the island of Bauvista at, maybe it's Bauvista, I don't know, Bauvista at Cape Verde in 1948. The so-called FNRS-2, a precursor to the bathyscaphe that would make the journey to the bottom of the ocean, was ready for its first test phase. Because, because it was its very first drop into the drink, there would be no one inside. In fact, it was equipped with a primitive autopilot that was timed to drop ballast and rise back to the surface after a set period of time, and uh, at which point it would return to the scientists and the French Navy waiting above. So... <laughs> I guess I'd never thought autopilot would be a thing in 1948, but I guess now that I think about it, probably not that hard. You're just sinking a boat. So August and Jacques expected some serious drift from yeah, the Yeah, because I was going to say, we should, it should probably note, like, because, you know, this is post-World War II, so obviously, like, submarines exist, but we're talking about a hugely different, uh, different set of challenges because submarines on World War II only go like i think between 100 and 300 meters down is the deepest they can go before they start having you know serious issues and we're talking much much deeper than that mm -hmm. so that's why they're not just able to you know send a u-boat down well and of course you know during the war there were autopilots and things being developed in like the v1 and the v2 um what did the v1 have an autopilot or was it all calculated in advance i don't remember but either way, the Germans, I believe, were working on an autopilot for the rocket. Is that correct? Um, I don't know if they ever did it. I think they were working on it. But okay. They were. I mean, they were working on everything. Like they were. They were going to Antarctica. They were going to the moon. Man. <laughs> Visiting Shambhala. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I thought it was very interesting that this this could be included, even though it is very simple. It it is a precursor to what we have today with you know self driving cars and all that meme science. So anyway. Uh, <clears throat> they expected some very serious drift, um, autopilot or not. They expected the, the this free-floating submersible to sort of get pushed around and float away. So they employed the help of several French Navy ships and planes to recover the vehicle when it came back up. 
And with the autopilot rigged up, the team dropped the vessel into the ocean and watched it sink like a rock. Which, let's admit, like, you've worked on this thing and now you're just dropping it into the water and hoping it comes back up. <laughs> It'd be a real bummer if it didn't, you know. <laughs> a little bit nerve-wracking. A little bit nerve-wracking. Um, so after some time uh, of the Picards hoping the autopilot hadn't gone rogue and stolen the boat to go to Antarctica, of course, the FNRS came back to the surface and was recovered. Uh, Yay! And it, ha <laughs> it had drifted quite a distance. They had a whole, like, grid laid out of a certain, you know, part of the, uh, the, the ocean where they were going to search for it, but um, I can't remember the exact distance, but it was more than I expected. But now it was finally time for August Picard and Max Cousins to take a ride. Except Max Cousins was kinda seasick and maybe a little bit scared, so he gave up his ticket to ride to a random biologist named Professor Monod. <laughs> so the, that doesn't the, uh, sound like a real name. I know. The company man was like, ah, he, good luck down there. I'll just uh, sign off on these papers here saying you're doing this. Um, which is hilarious to me, because he had literally has one job to go along for the ride, and he's not doing it. So the two professors, Picard and Monod, then boarded the bathyscaphe and proceeded to test the shit out of it. And this is way less exciting than it sounds. First they floated, then they sank a little, and then they just sat there for a bit in the shallow water with French frogmen swimming around the thing doing their own little tests. And at one point, they got bored and actually played a game of chess while sitting in this thing, just running tests, and, you know, this is a sign of great genius. If you can play a game of chess while testing your own revolutionary submarine, you might be some kind of a god. <laughs> sort of like I've been playing three games of chess the whole time we've been recording this podcast. That explains a lot. Yeah, yeah. So testing went on in multiple <sighs> See, locations. They just... just a they don't make them like they used to. Like now, you'd have some sort of HR goon like talking about how you're wasting, you know, you're wasting government time and money. You've gotta, you've gotta keep testing. You can't play chess. Yeah, chess is irresponsible and expensive. Back back in the old days, you could just sit in your revolutionary submarine and play chess like a gentleman and a scholar. <laughs> we have to go back. We have got to get back to this era of science. Um, you can just imagine them, like, munching on a sandwich and brewing coffee and like, ah, yes, night to E5, <laughs> like, <laughs> running the submarine all at once. <laughs> so anyway, the, these tests weren't in ju just in Val Vista, they went all over the world. Uh, they had run-ins with sharks that were, like, you know, chewing on the ballast, you know, like, bumping up against the windows. There were explosions almost caused by people smoking cigarettes um, on the deck. Classic yeah. French scientific research. <laughs> yeah, they'd be smoking on the surface, um, just like looking down into the water like, I wonder when that giant tank of gasoline will come back and flicks the butt into the water. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, when they came back up, they had to empty all of the gasoline into the ocean. So, like, these guys sitting on the surface smoking could have ended the whole operation. <laughs> Typical baguette behavior. Um, so there was an entirely new version of the submarine built, um, at a certain point, creatively named the FNRS-3. Oh, wow. Oh, ho, ho. It had some sweet upgrades, like an escape hatch in case of disaster, um, and, a access, some sort of new access hatch altogether. I can't remember exactly what it was. I think it went through the ballast tank. 
Um, and, but I'm not sure what the escape hatch was for, because I'm not sure where you're going to go if you're at the bottom of the ocean. But <laughs> Then finally, with the press getting sufficiently excited again, and you remember our, our friends in the press were a big part of August's initial success with his uh, stratospheric expedition, amazing stories began to circulate around the world that those crazy Picards were at it again. Um, and as these stories went out, funding opportunities began to pour through. So, oh, funding, yeah, more money, <laughs> love, love funding. A I'd new like submarine. What? I'd like to have some someday. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I smell pennies. A new submarine would be built, and this would be called the Trieste or the Trieste, whatever. It was named after the city of Trieste in Italy which became, the city itself, became the main sponsor of this new project. And in 1953, Jacques Picard and Auguste Picard took this submarine to the island of Ponza, also Italian. And they dove this thing over 10,000 feet into the black of the ocean. And this is one of the many test runs that the Picards would take the Trieste on. And not all of them, of course, were successful. One of the first test runs ended with the Picards burying the cabin in the deep sea mud all the way up to the porthole. Sort of like getting your rubber boots stuck in a swamp. Uh, it's kind of kind of difficult to get out. <laughs> so they're like, dive, dive, squish. <laughs> Uh-oh, look out the window. It's just mud. Uh, in fact, in this particular event, August wrote in his book that they were afraid of releasing the ballast or they were afraid that releasing the ballast, um, they would not have the buoyancy they would need to get back to the surface. They were like, oh, if we let out all of the gasoline and uh, we just wait, are, are we going to actually get free of this? Um, there were these uh, quote-unquote tomb silent moments as they released the ballast where the thing just didn't move and they were just sitting there at the bottom of the ocean in their little capsule buried in the mud. Which is horrifying. Um, but not to them. They were probably brewing coffee and playing chess the whole time. <laughs> As gentlemen should. Yes. So thankfully, after releasing nearly all of their ballast, they broke free and rocketed back to the surface. Um, but yeah, I don't even like imagining what it would be like to be stuck that deep in a space that small. <laughs> so this incident ended up being kind of a good thing, because there were many, many skeptical journalists, if you can believe that, um, on the surface, who didn't really believe that the Trieste had actually gone that deep. That is, until one of the French divers accompanying them dove into the water and pulled a giant glob of mud and clay off the bottom of the sphere and brought it up, uh, showing proof that they had indeed hit the bottom of the ocean. Um, which I guess was proof enough for the, uh, for the press, so... There you go. Here's an unrelated picture of August Picard looking down into the Trieste through the access hatch, um, which kind of looks like me digging through the snack drawer at 4.30 in the morning after a trying shift. Either that or, like, an album cover for some sort of weird, like, experimental rock band. Yeah, I think this might be the uh, cover for the, for the episode. I really like this picture. I support it. Hmm. So it is during this testing phase that Auguste Picard would fade from his sea exploration and his son Jacques would really take up the job. At the end of this particular line of his career, Auguste Picard simply lacked the funding necessary to continue these dives, uh, but he was also just getting old and he was tired and the tech was taking way too long to develop. Um, nonetheless, the early tests had all been wildly successful, so Picard could pat himself on the back for that. 
But the Trieste still needed more development before it could go much deeper than 1,700 fathoms, or around 10,000 feet beneath the waves. In the final pages of the narrative section of his book, August jokingly curses, Nep uh, jokingly curses Neptune as being the only thing preventing him from plumbing the depths any further. <laughs> um, he compares Classic. himself to... Yeah, he's, he's basically like, yep, yeah, um, so I've spent my whole life reaching the highest of heights and the deepest of depths, and frickin' Neptune got in the way here at the end, so I guess my son will just have to go ahead and beat Neptune. Um, so in the last uh, third of Earth, Sky, and Sea, August Picard dreams again of a world where exploratory technology like the Bathyscaph could be used to better the world. He writes of many amazing things he expects to see in the future. Haha, <laughs> I did an accidental pun because I misspelled C. <laughs> um, he he envisioned things like an <laughs> yeah. underwater helicopter, which sounds amazing. Um, though I'm not sure how it would work exactly. But didn't your guy Francis, I mean Roger Bacon, talk about some kind of helicopter? Oh, that's that's stretching back. I think he, I think he did think about the. Th did think about flight and how it might be possible. Um, his his big thing was optics. Um, but I think I'm pretty sure he was also thinking of flight. Everybody everybody seems to think about ways to make more helicopters. Yeah, it's just a natural human urge. The natural human urge to helicopter. That wasn't meant to be disgusting, but there you go. In 1956, to solve their financial problems yet again, Jacques Picard began working directly. Uh, with the United States. Oh. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's, it's like they say, either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. I know. Specifically, they worked with the U.S. Navy. And of course, the Navy had special interest in a vessel that could visit even the most inaccessible parts of the ocean, not just for developing underwater nuclear bases for the aliens to live in, but also as a salvage and even underwater rescue vehicle. So that was their official reason, but we all know that they were... Likely. Wanting, likely story. They were wanting to dig up old Cthulhu to be used in the war against China. So this new deal, of course, meant that the Navy would once again be <laughs> sending <deal>. on their... <laughs> what? The new deal. Yeah. The new deal. Roosevelt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. You gotta cover Roosevelt. So now you've got Roosevelt and Jung to cover, and I want your take on both. So this, all this meant is that the Navy's going to send along their own little men to make sure that the work was continuing in earnest. Um, without a doubt, as we have seen before, work got harder when outside parties got involved. Um, they had all of these, you know, meetings and regulations and papers to fill out, but, you know, the money was good and the support at the time was necessary because the Navy had the Navy. Um, they had other boats that could assist in these expeditions. Um... It was, you know, unnecessary evil to get beyond the great gatekeeper of science called, you know, funding. And the Navy worked the Trieste to the bone, making 22 dives in the first 17 months after slapping the U.S. Navy logo right there on the side. <clears throat> Eventually, instead of sponsoring the Picards, the Navy brought the bought the Trieste, they straight up bought it, and hired Jacques Picard as a consultant. So now it's a government operation, which means, you know, this thing is going to be pushed to the absolute limit, and Jacques Picard is just sort of there as window dressing. Um, I guess. Even though he, he knew the vessel better than they did, he helped design it, you know. 
it's going to be a Navy man who's sort of running things, right? So, <clears throat> all this means is that after the initial stress testing and relatively deep dives that broke three records, the Navy went straight for the jugular and decided to send this thing to the bottom of the Marianas Trench, the deepest known part of the ocean. So, they're not waiting around. They're like, we've got this thing, it can probably go this deep, we're gonna send it this deep. So, Jacques Picard worked with a Navy man known as then-Lieutenant Don Walsh. Uh, Captain Don Walsh is still alive today. He's aged 89 and boasts an amazing career as a highly accomplished veteran of submarine science. But again, he was a Navy man, which of course means that his interests were those of the Navy. That's literally what he swore his oath on. And these interests could be kinda picky, but they also came from a place of military interest, and not specifically the same desire for exploration that the Picards were famous for. Um, it's not just about seeing the cool fish anymore. Exactly. Nevertheless, it was one of the things that the... Um, I'm sorry, nevertheless, if there was one thing that the Navy had that the Picards needed, it was that support, that sweet, sweet infrastructural support. And Don Walsh was probably the best kind of person they could ask for to be included in these new operations. He wasn't an idiot. Um, you know, he wasn't just like, oh, we've got a, a secretary who can write. Like, this was an accomplished submariner, you know. Um, but he does appear in almost all of the pictures um, with the Trieste from this point on, as August disappears from them. So the Marianas Trench is about 36,000 feet deep. Um, which is really, really really deep yeah section... so for comparison we were talking about the the normal range of world war ii submarines we're talking 300 meters under like i think 500 meters was like the you will literally die instantly depth of yeah. world war ii submarines and now we're talking thirty six thousand. so that's a that's a big step up yeah it's a it's a big deal um and the section of the trench that Jacques Picard and Don Walsh would be paying a visit to was called Challenger Deep. Which was named after the HMS Challenger, a royal corvette known for blowing up uh, blowing? God. Marking- Wait, is that not right? That No, it's blowing up. I just said blowing uh. I need to be saying blowing up. <laughs> Challenger Deep. Which was named after the HMS Challenger. A Royal Corvette from, I believe, the 1860s, 70s, or 80s. Doesn't matter. <laughs> a famous Corvette known for blowing up a bunch of Winamala natives. After they killed a missionary in Fiji, um, they just, they were like, oh, they, those guys killed a missionary. We, let's go blow them up. <laughs> but it was also known for plumbing the depths of the Marianas Trench during its illustrious career. And yes, of course, the Challenger Space Shuttle was also named after this boat. Um, which is really weird, but I, you know, I don't know what to do with that, so. You're also, you're not mentioning the most important part of the Challenger. What? When it was doing its dredging and stuff in the trench, it, uh, got a megalodon tooth, which they say it was something to do with the environment there, that its decomposition was all whack, but tests indicated that it was only, like, 10 to 20,000 years old. Whoa. Wait. And so, yeah. Yeah, and so that's whenever you read, like, the conspiracy theories about the Megalodon still being alive, it's because of this tooth that the HMS Challenger dug up when they were, uh, digging stuff up, I guess. Um, 
And yeah, nice. they they claim it's uh, yeah due to something weird with the environment in the deep sea trench or whatever, and so it didn't decay properly. But uh, you run into the HMS Challenger whenever you're doing the old Megalodon research. You want to hear something weird? Um, the only reason I wanted to, I, I even started looking into this, was I was reading about the, the Thresher. You remember that submarine that went missing? No, I don't. No, I was reading about the USS Thresher. There was this, this weird situation where this military submarine just went missing and no one knew why. And they actually used um, one of Jacques Picard's submarines. I think it was one version of the Trieste. Uh, to at least observe the wreckage and figure out what happened. They photographed it. Um, crazy story, but there's a lot of conspiracy theories around the Thresher, and there was another sh another uh, submarine that went missing. Just sort of sailing along, checking in, and suddenly they just disappear. Megalodon. That's Megalodon. That's, that's, we can conclude that. They stole can, the Megalodon's tooth. Can we have a Megalodon person on the show? You know, after we have Howdy on, I think we could. <laughs> Man, I would love a megalodon person. Yeah, a, me like, a megalodon person. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I'm an absolute sucker for like giant extinct monsters. Yeah, you know, I ne I never picked up on that, but that is interesting. You're you're probably all about Shark Week, then, huh? It's always Shark Week. <laughs> we should just cover a really legendary shark in Shark Week. Yeah, that's literally we talk about dead sharks. We have abandoned the people part of this podcast. We will exclusively be covering sharks now. Yes, <laughs> I, I support this. <laughs> so anyway, yes, Challenger Deep was named after the HMS Challenger. Um, and there's a lot of weird stuff surrounding all of this. Mainly, there's sort of like a Bermuda Triangle effect when um, you get to these boats that are plumbing the deepest of depths and, you know, submarines going missing and things like that. It's... The ocean is a strange, strange place. It's like space, but with creatures, you know? Um, Who says there are no creatures in space? Uh, I thought you said space was fake. <laughs> oh, wait, or was that just the moon? My, go my goals are beyond your comprehension. <laughs> right? <laughs> that red-pilled space is fake. Alright. So Don Walsh and Jacques Picard boarded the Trieste in Guam on January 23rd, 1960. They brought minimal supplies and no extra equipment with them on this journey. Um, this was simply another Navy-style test to just see how deep this thing could actually go. Again, no longer about the fish. This vessel was the mission. So the whole thing, unfortunately, was pretty uneventful, if you can call diving to the deepest part of the ocean uneventful. Um, the two men descended in the bathyscaphe to the depth of 30,000 feet, at which point the bustle... Uh, the bustle? <laughs> the vessel buckled and creaked loudly. Well, I think... I, I would say at least it, it earned its name that time. <laughs> the bustle? No, the bathyscaphe. Yeah. It really means deep boat. Oh, yeah. Well, it went really deep, and then it started making weird noises and creaking. Like a... Like a... Like it's sinking or something's wrong with it. Well, I mean, um, I think it was supposed to be sinking. Well, yes. That was, the, well, that was the point. Oh, shut up. <laughs> no. Um, no, they were just like, oh, well, there was a cracking noise and... Probably nothing. Don Walsh is like, keep diving. And Jacques Picard is like, oh, no. And Don Walsh is like, keep diving. Because he's, you know, the, the crazy CIA guy going along for the ride. But 
probably played by Dolph Lundgren or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or who's that guy? Uh, um, I always forget his name. The Apollo 13 guy. Ed, Ed, uh, what's his name? Oh my God. It's not Ed Helms. God. He, he was, he played the CIA guy in Call of Duty Black Ops. He's always playing like the government character. I don't um, know. I don't like him though. Ed something. Is it? There's going to be a listener who's like, It's Ed Blank! Oh my god, you're so dumb! Why don't you Google it? Because I don't, I don't care anymore. So anyway, they're getting weird noises. They get to 30,000 feet. We really know nothing else after this point. Um, because the Trieste compacted in on itself, crumpled up like a beer can at a frat party, and sank to the bottom of the ocean. Uh, just kidding, of course. But they did hear that loud cracking noise and continued anyway. Which feels like a huge risk, but again, this is the Navy's mission. Safety is not the goal! Dive time to the very bottom took around five hours, um, which is just a long time to sit there and play chess and brew coffee. But when the bathyscaphe finally reached 35,800 feet, it settled in a snot-colored valley, which Walsh described as looking like, quote, a bowl of milk. It's disgusting. I know. <laughs> um, I guess the lights were powerful enough to light it up enough for Walsh to be like, It looks like we're in a bowl of milk. <laughs> uh, I watched several interviews with him. He's a lovely, lovely elderly man. Um, very excited about his submarines and things. So, Picard would report that he saw exotic fish at this depth. Um... Jacques said he saw some kind of flat little piece of shit down there just sort of scurrying around. Um, but a lot of scientists contest this these days, saying he must have been seeing things because nothing could survive at that depth. But, you know, scientists have been wrong What before. do they know? Exactly. So, I'm down for pancake fish in the bowl of milk. Um, it was probably just like a Cheerio. Uh, Cthulhu's Cheerios. Just like, good, what? there's a fly in my milk. <laughs> so there they sat. Uh, looking through the portholes for about 20 minutes. Um, did I mention the windows were cracked now? Ah, uh, must have been pretty warm in there. They had to crack a window. <laughs> hey! No, like, the portholes were, like, physically cracked. Um, Seems safe. At a thousand times surface pressure, your windows would crack, too. <laughs> so they're looking through these things, you know, presumably water's leaking in, and Don Walsh is like, Keep diving! <laughs> He wants to get into the bowl of milk, you know. Um, but Jacques Picard finally made a call and said, Hey, it's it's time to go back to the surface. This thing can't hold for much longer. Um, so they start to, you know, dump their ballast or whatever, and they're going back to the surface, and it takes three hours. Um, and bang, they reach the surface, and the first journey to the bottom of the ocean is just done. Just like that. They just sank, and then they came back up. Which is admittedly, I will say, it feels way more dangerous, way scarier in a way, but also less glorious than reaching the stratosphere and you know, drinking yeah, so water guess, from a. So I guess when you're goblet. in one of those, when you're in one of those vessels, you don't have to uh, worry about um, getting all weird and decompressed when you come up, right? That's just if you're diving. Yeah, because I know, like, when you're diving, you have to like stop for ten minutes every so many hundred feet, or else once you get to the surface, your organs are gonna go all. Ew. Yeah, yeah. That's so at least just you don't a... have to worry about that. Well, it's just to to think about thirty six thousand feet of water on top of you in your dinky little bathosphere. 
I mean, so I guess the question is, why so slow? Why three hours? Like, why not just cut the ballast and just shoot <laughs> straight up and like come out of the water like a beach ball you've been holding under in the pool and like, just like, here we go. <laughs> Next stop, North Korea. <laughs> <laughs> No, I guess I can't answer that. I didn't, I didn't, um, I couldn't get, uh, Jacques Picard's book on this for free, so I had to, like, go to secondary sources, and it, it's admittedly not as good as when I could just get August Picard's book for free. Um, but hey, you know, maybe someday I'll spend, uh, I'll spend some money on some books again. Though I did just order, like, $50 worth of books for the next episode I want to do, but no spoilers! Anyway... I was still imagining the beach ball, just like the little Navy observation vessels are just sitting there, you know, being stupid or whatever. And then just out of the depths at like 100 miles an hour just comes this spear, just shoots like 40 feet into the air. They're like, oh, my God. <laughs> and like the Pirates of the Caribbean music starts playing. And it's incredible. You are, without a doubt, the that's worst the, pirate I've ever heard of. That's the best scientist I've ever seen. <laughs> No, he launches all out of the ocean and launch, it goes all the way up to the stratosphere and just cannonballs you, through the... You will remember this is the day that you almost caught <laughs> Mr. Jacques Picard. <laughs> Monsieur Jacques Picard. <laughs> oh yeah, it's yeah. All, the, the image is all coming together in my mind. Uh, yeah, Operation Fishbowl was just Jacques Picard and his... His uh, hilarious cannonball being launched through the firmament, and we've the Navy never seen is just him like, since. stop him! He has the tax dollars. <laughs> <laughs> There's just a stream of money trailing by. <laughs> wow, that's funny. <laughs> so anyway. <clears throat> After this amazing expedition, where none of what, any of what we were just joking about happened, um, Jacques Picard would continue to design new submarines, including the first like real passenger submarine, the PX-8 Messascaf, which he frequently dove uh, in Lake Geneva at Geneva in Switzerland, uh -huh. um, and I think it, it had a capacity of like. Third? It had a rather large... I didn't look into it because he did a whole bunch of other stuff, but he did name this passenger submarine that he dove in a lake the August Picard after his father, which is kind of endearing. I like that. Um, and it's a pretty cool-looking submarine, too. Just Google the PX-8. Um, Picard also designed the PX-15, or called the Benjamin Franklin, and captained a crew of four... Well, no, captained a crew on a four-week-long undersea drift in 1969. Um, all this was was they dove and then just let the ocean carry them. Um, ocean man, take me by the hand. <laughs> they left on this journey two days before Apollo 11 would allegedly launch and take us to the moon. The Benjamin Franklin was bought two years after this expedition by a Vancouver businessman. Uh, and it was just left alone to rot for nearly 30 years on some godforsaken Canadian shore uh, before it was given to the Vancouver Maritime Museum as a donation. It was restored and now sits right out front for all to see. And the Benjamin Franklin expedition is kind of amazing. Like, 
I don't know, lots of submarines would be underwater for quite a while, resurfaced for various purposes, but this one was underwater for, you know, 30 days almost. And it was designed for that purpose, and just imagine being in this cabin with a bunch of people, like, just sort of drifting beneath the waves. I don't know, there's something, something about that that's kind of... This, this, uh, this whole research, uh, the research for this whole episode may be completely hydrophobic. I'd never want to see the water again. <laughs> um. But anyway, so after these expeditions, uh, Jacques Picard sort of vanishes from popular history, mainly because he stopped doing cool things with submarines and started working with global initiatives to celebrate successful scientists around the world and things like that. He was one of the founding members of the World Cultural Council. Sounds uh, fake. I know. Um, you can look at go Google their website. It's uh, it's something. So this was a group of brainiacs who sort of went around patting each other on the back for being amazing at science and art and things like that. And the website, as far as I can see, has this very outdated "We Are the World" kind of early globalist vibe to it, which sort of makes me feel a little weird because I remember when I was a kid, there was. You know, there were things that were like, you know, you would be in preschool or whatever, and you'd read a book about, you know, like, how the Grinch stole Christmas, and then every now and then they'd bring in a book that just, like, felt like black magic. I don't know if you ever experienced this, but there were they would bring in these books that had this We Are the World vibe, and I would just get kind of queasy feeling about it, even as a little kid. Um, so I went when I went to this website, I was reminded of, like, one time when I was in preschool, one of the teachers brought in this book about, like, how there are no nations, no borders, and we are the world. And I remember, as a even as a kid, being like, huh? <laughs> this feels like it has an agenda. <laughs> Sounds pretty sus. Yeah, very, very sus. Among us. Anyway, Jacques Picard would also have a son named Bertrand Picard, who we mentioned last episode, who very much does the same kinds of things today that his, you know, ancestors did before. He was already established within the global scientific community by his father and grandfather's reputations as brilliant and audacious adventurers, um, but Bertrand seems to have sort of worked backward. Um, he always had access to whatever funding he wanted, and he was always a part of these global conversations about what just we were, what the hell we were going to do with science now. Um, and like many of these apparently well-meaning global community types, he did get involved with climate science and all kinds of rich people memes like global medicine, supplies, etc. Um, but Bertrand strikes me as either a really good poser or a little different, because while he was involved in all this stuff, it didn't seem to it doesn't seem to be his main focus. Um, he does TED talks and things, but you know, and he goes to the meetings because he's a Picard, but he also obtained every license he possibly could to operate various exploratory machinery. He did become the first man to circumnavigate the globe in a balloon craft. Hey, I'm, I'm down for that. Right, so he's still doing cool things. Like, okay, look, if you're a rich globalist, there's two things you should do. Really cool stuff that poor people can't do, and sponsoring We Talk About Dead People. So there you go. Bertrand, if you're listening, buddy, we could use your help. <laughs> There's actually a really good documentary on YouTube about Bertrand's trip uh, in his balloon craft around the world, and it's really interesting because the uh, capsule that they float in is a lot like the Benjamin Franklin submersible. It's just hanging from a balloon. It's like a cat. It's like a little tiny house hanging from a balloon, and he just sits in it and writes and makes observations and just lets That's the, the life man 
lets the wind carry him around the world. Yeah, it's not so bad, so... It's a good documentary. There was a, there was, um, it was like a whole bunch of scientists that competed to build all this necessary equipment, chart their different routes, and then they would just all go up and wait and see who won. And some people crashed into the ocean, which was kind of a bummer for them, but Bertrand made it with his co-pilot, so there you go. And I would go on, but Bertrand is not dead yet, so I'm afraid it's against company policy to dissect his entire life here. Um... But Jacques Picard himself did pass away in Lake Geneva, Switzerland in 2008 at the age of 86. His son vowed to take up his journey and continued the great Picard legacy, and we shall see if he does. Only Bertrand, the only good elite, can save us from the hell of the 2020s. Um, and I'm just hoping he's one of the good guys up there in that globalist sphere. But that website made me feel funky, so who knows. But that about does it for this episode of the podcast. I'll end on this excerpt from Jacques Picard's obituary, which I don't think we do have done very often, like an actual obituary. So here we go. Geneva, AP. Jacques Picard, a scientist and underwater explorer who plunged deeper beneath the ocean than any other man, died Saturday, his son's company said. He was 86. Exploration ran in the Picard family. Jacques' father... Uh, Auguste was the first man to take a balloon into the stratosphere, and his son Bertrand was the first man to fly a balloon nonstop around the world. Jacques Picard helped his father invent the bathyscaphe, a vessel that allows humans to descend to great depths. On January 23, 1960, he and U.S. Navy Lieutenant Don Walsh took the vessel into the Pacific's Mariana, Marianas, it's interchangeable, Mariana Trench, and dove to a depth of 35,800 feet, nearly seven miles below sea level. It remains the deepest dive ever carried out. After the dive, Picard continued to research the deep seas and worked for NASA! He also built four mid-death submarines, or mesoscaphs, including the first tourist submarine. During the Swiss, Swiss, I do it all the time, Swiss National Exhibition of 1964, he took 33,000 Illuminati-confirmed passengers into the depths mm -hmm. of Lake Geneva. He continued taking high school children into the lake well into his 70s, which... I don't like that sentence. He continued yeah, taking that... high school children into the lake <laughs> like, well into like his 70s. About some, some weird monster you have to kill in The Witcher. Yeah. <laughs> he takes the children into the lake. The old man <laughs> with the submarine. <laughs> <laughs> Uncomfortable. Hmm. Let's continue on. <laughs> Bertrand continues to work on pioneering projects. His Solar Impulse project aims to fly a solar-powered airplane around the world. Jacques, quote, passed on to me a sense of curiosity, a desire to mistrust dogmas and common assumptions, a belief in free will, and confidence in the face of the unknown, Bertrand Picard said. And that's the end of that. And that's all I have for for this uh, this leg of the Picard journey. And uh, hopefully if, if Bertrand Picard ever dies, he leaves us a billion dollars and uh, a solar plane so we can get out of here forever. <laughs> no, man, the... We've got to get the submarine down to the depths and then cut the ballast. That's how you escape. And then just straight up like a beach ball. Cannonball, cannonball through the firmament. That's how you do it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I, that's about, about does it. Did you have anything you wanted to discuss or should we just head up to the surface? Well, we are. We're running pretty long here, so we should probably head up to the surface and, uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I enjoyed it. I learned a lot about bath escapes. Um, 
Didn't, didn't know about those. Is it Bathyscaphes? Have I been saying Bathyscaph wrongly the whole time? No, no, I think I was just mispronouncing it. Oh, for, okay. You know, for I, comedic I don't know. effect. <laughs> Put it this way, the Greek word that it started from would have been scaph, so I presume that's carried over in English, but you know, you, you can never make these assumptions 100% certain, so whatever. Anyway, not, it was fun, I enjoyed anyway. it. I'm still just loving the image of the Pirates of the Caribbean theme played as they just rocket past all the Navy vessels. Like, stop that man! <laughs> <laughs> He's getting away! <laughs> yeah. Nice. Well, maybe that's what we should do, except since we're in a Skylab or whatever, we're going to have to fall into the ocean and sink all the way to the bottom. So if you're good I with that. I feel like that's not really the same thing, but okay. I'm, I mean, <laughs> you know, whatever. <laughs> I'm, I'm easy. Like, whatever you want to do, man. So, Aaron, if you had to dive to the bottom of the ocean with a sponsored co-pilot, who would you pick and what corporate body would you be working for? Hmm. I think I'd take that dude, um, that, that, that meme people have been pushing around, you know, Charles Schwab, not Charles Schwab, Klaus Schwab. You, you see this guy? Oh, yeah, the scary looking guy. The Great Reset lad? Yeah, Which, with like the Star Wars robes. Yeah, the Star Wars robes and the weird like Nazi, which are voice. apparently from like a from like an honorary degree in Lithuania. Which I, I don't, I don't know what's going on in Lithuania, but it ain't good. Either way, I I don't know anything about that guy except that he sounds super scary and can probably shoot lightning from his fingertips. So that would totally be my co-pilot, um, because he could probably fight off the Kraken. Uh, and the corporate body I'd be working for would be. Mm, China. <laughs> I just wanted to let you know that during that whole time, I was listening to the Pirates of the Caribbean theme on my headphones while you were talking. It was really, really added something to it. <laughs> just you and Klaus Schwab in the boat. <laughs> so if you had to dive to the bottom of the ocean with a sponsored co-pilot, who would you pick and what corporate body would you be working for? Easy. Quaker Oats man. And Quaker Oats. <laughs> Why? I don't know. Gotta I just, soak I just, the oats. I just went on impulse, man. Like, as soon as you asked, like, first thing that popped into my head, Quaker Oats, man. I trust him with my life. You know, I, I vaguely remember actually starting an episode about that guy. But that was long ago when I was still in meme history zone instead of, like, actual history zone. <laughs> no, let's, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Yeah. Well, hey. <laughs> I mean, we are talking about some interesting things this weekend. That's true. That's true. And it is going to be very interesting. And Meme history is actual history. Well, on that note. <laughs> on that note, we need to find a Megalodon expert. Yes. Uh, in fact, that's what's going to play us out. Sound of a Megalodon expert. Play you out. I think it's time to bring the show to an end for today. If you hate us, you're probably right, so consider funding the show by becoming a patron on Patreon.com. Or if Patreon is not your thing, drop us a little tip in Venmo, that's at WTADP. To everyone who has contributed, we thank you very, very much, and we wish you all the best on your trips to the heavens, because that's where you're all going. You're all going to heaven for... I shouldn't do that. That's... that's offensive. But it's good to give to things that you like, especially if they're... Independent. <laughs> in, uh, in other news, 
Aaron, proud Protestant half of We Talk About Dead People, has begun selling indulgences. (laughs) (laughs) Subscribe now to Patreon to get an indulgence, kids. It's the only way to absolve your sin of listening to Joe Rogan for all these years. Jeez, next he'll be taking kids into the lake again. (laughs) (laughs) Our cover art was created by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. And with all that being said, we'll close out and let the glorious sound of a Megalodon expert play you out. I hope a neutral flag will be hoisted in the stratosphere.